Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about tech, including news, reviews, and maybe a rant once in a while. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh5. A quick note up front, we'll be taking the next two weeks off, so there won't be an episode on Christmas Day nor New Year's Day. During the break, we will also decide whether Monday is the best day to release episodes in 2018. We'll have an update on our website, tehpodcast.com, as soon as that's finalized. So on to introductions. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, weekly since 1994. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of macmost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials. I also make mobile games that you could find at clevermedia.com. I'm Leo Notenboom, Chief Question Answerer out at AskLeo.com. I'm Ken Gagney, host of the monthly podcast Polygamer, where I examine issues of equality and diversity in gaming, and co-host of the weekly Star Trek show, Transporter Lock. So, Beam me up. <laughs> go ahead, Leo. Yeah, so it's interesting. There's a, an article on the hackernews.com. Um, that uh, has the headline, you know, Microsoft issues emergency Windows security update for a critical vulnerability. And, you know, it's something we hear from time to time. Uh, this particular one is interesting because it's actually a vulnerability, not in Windows itself per se, but in Windows Defender, the anti-malware tool. Uh, the anti-malware tool is amazingly complicated under the hood. It actually has to understand you know, like a bazillion file formats, many of them arcane, in order to be able to scan or understand the, uh, the contents of those files for uh, looking for malware. And, you know, not surprisingly, uh, every once in a while they might get it wrong, especially for some of the more arcane uh, and older file formats that nobody really uses anymore, but they still have to continue scanning. Um, the interesting thing really that caught my eye was that someone, um, I don't even have the, uh, the reference to it, said that, um, okay, you know, this is it. It's time to turn off Windows Auto Update. It's time to turn off Microsoft Auto Update. That was computer world of all people. Oh. Which, yeah, which is, is surprising. And I, it's, it's a refrain I get a lot. There are a lot of people, a lot of visitors to Ask Leo who are adamant about not having Windows Update run automatically. They were very annoyed when much of the control over that feature was removed uh, with the release of Windows 10. The problem is the people who are advocating turning it off are people who generally can take a look at a list of patches. They know where to find it to begin with. And they can actually perform a reasonable evaluation of whether or not that particular patch, that particular fix, uh, is going to be important to them. Um, as I wrote to somebody in an article I think I published earlier this week, uh, you know, yeah, a majority of the patches actually are things that are, you, that are actually safe to ignore. They're actually safe to at least postpone for a while. The problem is that that's true except when it isn't when there's an, a, literally a critical patch that comes along. The classic case, of course, is the zero-day vulnerability where there's actually malware out in the wild for something that has not yet been patched. You want to get that patch as quick as possible. The average consumer is not in a position to make those decisions. They don't know when they should update or what they should pick and choose from the list. 
I still believe strongly that the right thing for the average computer user, the average Windows user, is to let Windows Update do its job. Yep, every once in a while it's going to get it wrong. Um, it's a frighteningly, I shouldn't say frighteningly, it's an amazingly small percentage of people that are actually impacted when Microsoft Update gets something wrong, but they're obviously very vocal. And as a result, things seem a lot worse than they really are. And of course, from my perspective, it's trivially easy to protect yourself from those situations by having a backup, by just being able to restore to a backup. If you're ever in one of those unfortunate situations where Windows Update, Microsoft Update causes you any problem whatsoever, you know not to take that update. And all you need to do is revert to your most recent backup and just hold off for a while until, until the dust settles and things get cleared out. Things do get cleared out very quickly in most cases. But to, blatant, to, to make this broad statement that you, know, you, should you should not be running Windows Update automatically, um, that scares me. I think that's going to cause more people more grief in the long run uh, than the alternative. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think unless you're a real power user that really can understand whether those various updates are for you or not, you should just assume that they are and go for it. I'm assuming that's what you do, Randy. That is pretty, I pretty much, you know, look at everyone that it's offering me and I defer on some of them, but certainly anything that's to do with Windows Defender or any critical infrastructure of Windows itself, yeah, I take it. I don't even bother looking into saying, well, what exact component is it dealing with? It's not worth my time. Now, you're and still never, Windows 7, correct? I still am on uh, 7 Pro, yes. Yes, so you've got the option of actually seeing the list of updates very easily. With Windows 10, that option has more or less been removed. It's very difficult to actually take a look at the updates that are being proposed at any detailed level. Even in the pro version, I guess. Correct. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think it's until enterprise where you end up with significant, where it's really designed for a more centralized command and control in a large organization, a large enterprise, um, that that kind of information starts to, uh, to make it out. Well, I'm glad I'm still in seven then. Hmm. A lot of people are, um, but that too is going to change. At some point, you're going to have to move. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stay as long as it's, um, as it's advantageous and still supported. Of course, if it gets to end of life, they're not patching it anymore. Yeah, I, I will update. Yeah. yeah, you pretty much have to. Update or switch. Yeah. Um, so, and I know that, you know, Gary, Ken, Macs aren't really um, invulnerable to this kind of a situation either, are they? Well, no, I mean, certainly uh, Mac users love to be very vocal when there's an update that, they, that does something negative. And, and the definition of negative really varies because, you know, there are a lot of times the negative thing is some user experience change, you know, whether some features change or something like that, and they get all the upset about moved. it. The button moved. Yeah, stuff like that. And, and, um, and you know, so and there definitely are people out there. There are people very smart people I know that will tell you don't update, you know, the update comes out, wait, or, and it, you know, especially when a major update comes out, you know, Oh, okay. Version, you know, 0.2 comes out, wait to 0.21 or something or, or two versions or three versions down. And I'm always of the mindset that it's, you know, the, the good always outweighs the bad, especially when it comes to security and stuff. And, uh, and you know, 
I, I just stay up to date all the time, take all the updates. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's just, you could run into trouble by not taking them just as easily as by taking them. Um, sometimes I get people email me and say, I heard that the update this week is buggy. Should I, should I get it? And I say, the update, this is my response all the time. The update this week is buggy. And the previous update was buggy. And the previous version of the operating system was buggy. And every version of Mac OS and Windows and Linux and everything has always been buggy. Software will always be buggy. So if you're going to have buggy software, at least have the latest stuff, have the latest features. Make sure your bugs are current, too. I like it. <laughs> you make sure your <laughs> bugs are current. Exactly. I, I like it. It's funny because a lot of people don't, ha- don't really understand, A, that all software has bugs, period. No exceptions. And B the developers aren't actively inserting bugs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, mistakes get made as software gets revised, but um, especially like in the case of Windows Defender, I think this particular instance and the one immediately prior, it happened several months ago, um, is actually a bug that's been sitting there for maybe the better part of a decade or more, right? It's not something new. It's always been there. It's just that it's been discovered. And it's the discovery that makes it that much more dangerous. Exactly. The Mac root, the you know, blank root password thing, that was there for a while before somebody discovered it. And, um, you know, and then afterwards people were saying, oh, you know, Apple's quality assurance is, is not very good. And it's like, no, if Apple's quality assurance was very good, th- there would have been 50 of these, not one. You know, there's, there's so many different things. And it was such a random set of, of uh, steps to reproduce this that somebody stumbled upon it. But, um, but yeah, you, you, you never can have perfect beta testing and quality assurance. Never perfect. There's, there are bugs. There are bugs in op- software that's now obsolete that nobody uses anymore. There were bugs that nobody ever found. <laughs> they were there. There's right. nobody ever discovered them. And right. some of them were critical. Yeah. So, yeah. So anybody listening, um, you know, A, backup, B, uh, update Windows, please, regularly. Let it do its job. Update all your software and your apps and, and all of that. So a lot, one of the things people don't understand sometimes is they'll, they'll have, say, a word processor, and there'll be an update for that word processor, and they could say, what could possibly be a security flaw in this word processor? Why would the... Why would the programmers making this word processor introduce something that could be a flaw and software is built on top of other software the people who code any major piece of software aren't building it from scratch they're using code libraries and the code libraries include all sorts of functionality and a lot of these software flaws are found in these code libraries not in the you know customizations made to them to make an app so somebody finds a flaw in a code library. There's a hundred different apps that use this. All the hundred different apps simply they update their libraries every time they release a new version, and that fixes the flaw. Sometimes without anybody even knowing the flaw was there. The scary part is that you know yes, there are a hundred different apps that might use that library but only 50 of them actually get updated because the other 50 have been abandoned by their developers, and those things live forever. Yeah, which is why I, try, I encourage people not to use abandoned <laughs> software. Not, or at least I would say not typical users. I think, uh, you know, there's a certain type of user. If I, wanna, if I want to have fun with some 
old game that doesn't exist anymore or whatever. And that's, that's one thing. And I know the risks I'm taking when I run software like that. But if you're a typical user and you're you know, stuck with your obsolete piece of software uh, on, on the Mac, it's things like Aperture and iPhoto. Um, you know, it's like there's a good reason besides uh, that the other software is newer and has better features. There's, there's also a good security reason to not stick with photo that nobody, uh, uh, software that nobody is updating. Anymore. Right. Yeah. On the windows side, it's all about uh, windows XP and outlook express. People love outlook express as an email program and it hasn't been updated in probably about eight or 10 years. And you know, it's already, it's known to corrupt databases if you get too much email, but I'm sure it's full of, of all sorts of interesting security ramifications if, if um, you know, malware authors were at all interested in trying to exploit it. The good news there, of course, is that for a lot of this outdated software, um, the attack surface has been slowly getting smaller and smaller as more and more people switch away from these to more modern applications. So, Leo, is there any danger of having, I mean, say I used Outlook Express, which I didn't, but if I did in the past and I've moved on to something else like Thunderbird and I've left the old software on my computer, is that a danger just having it there on your computer because of those old libraries or whatever? Yeah, there's no blanket answer for that one. In some cases, yes, it's a danger. In some cases, no, it's not. Um, So probably a good rule of thumb maybe is just to delete it if you're no longer using it. If you're not using software, you know, there's a, there's a number of reasons to just get it off your machine. Uh, That would be one of them. Disk space is another. Sometimes, uh, what a lot of people don't realize, especially with you know software that's more current than Outlook Express, is once you install it, it actually installs something that starts up automatically every time you log in. Well, if you're not using that software anymore, that's just stealing startup time and resources as you use your machine. So yeah, if you're not using it, uninstall it. Now, I happen to know that you're using or you were using email software that predates Outlook Express, and I'm glad to hear that you finally moved on. Yeah, I used Eudora for a long, long time and uh, switched to... Eudora a few years ago, no, excuse me, uh, Thunderbird a few years ago. Right. And I just wish that this modern current Thunderbird could search mail as well as the 10-year-old Eudora did. It's funny. I did hear from somebody else asking me a question literally this week. um, And he somehow mentioned uh, Eudora, that he was using Eudora as his email client. And I said, yep, yep. I I know a few folks like you. Yeah. But not anymore. Yep. (laughs) So... Randy, you've got an update on on Patreon. Yeah, I wasn't here last week, and we we talked quite a bit about Patreon. Or the, the hosts that were here talked about Patreon and their big oops. And real briefly, they announced that they were going to change the way they charged pledges, which resulted in significantly more fees for the credit card processing, but don't worry creators, we're going to stick the patron, the patrons with those fees. Well, pretty predictably, there was a huge uproar, both by patrons and creators. And by Wednesday of this week, Patreon backed off. They sent out an email to both creators and patrons with the subject line, we messed up, we're sorry. And then apologized again in the first sentence of the email They walked back the changes entirely, so they're not going to do it. They provided more detail in a blog post, which noted that before any future changes, quote, we're going to work with you to come up with the specifics as we should have done the first time around. Darn right. 
And very importantly, they acknowledged it will take a long time for us to earn back your trust. So I think that was a pretty textbook example of the right way to walk something back. But, you know, what kind of damage are they going to suffer in the long term? Good question. I had quite a few patrons on mine, and about a third of them have canceled their pledges. Uh, I am one of many creators who put in my own method on my own website for people to contribute money to be patrons to This Is True. And most have them. Most of them that have dropped Patreon have switched to my new platform, and I think I've picked up a few extras that didn't want to use Patreon in the first place. So it's kind of a win-win in some ways, but I really wonder about what's going to happen for the creators that aren't as techie as I am that couldn't implement something on their own website. I think they're going to be hurt really badly. And in that sense, what a fiasco. Yeah, I have to... I have to agree. I, I was in the same boat. Um, I fortunately actually already had an alternative in place that I was more or less ready to launch. I was planning on de-emphasizing Patreon for other reasons. Um, and I've had, I'd say probably about half of my patrons at least were have switched. Now, my numbers are probably a little bit skewed because my alternative, and I know as yours does, Randy, mine offers a couple of alternatives that Patreon didn't offer. Uh, specifically, uh, the number one request I got when I first went to Patreon was for an annual subscription, and they did monthly only. And uh, so, I've had a big uptake on that too. Yeah, yeah, I got, I've, I've got a surprising number of folks that signed up for the annual option on, you know, regardless of their pledge level, they just right. wanted to have one charge a year and have that be it. And I was very, very happy to be able to provide that to them. I still have a bunch of people on Patreon. And I actually, because they walked back the change, I feel less bad about that because they're not going to suffer. They're not going to end up paying more because they stayed. Um, but it does make me wonder, you know, what is Patreon going to do in the future? What Clearly, they needed to solve a problem. They were trying to solve a problem. Um, and that problem involved revenue on their part. What are the changes they're going to make in the future to solve that same problem that will hopefully um, involve us in the discussion. Well, they say that the changes were due to revenue to increase their stakes or whatever, but it was rather disingenuous the way they explained it because they said, oh, you know, we're passing these fees along to the patrons. But the whole advantage to the monthly subscription is that, for example, I back 36 different creators on Patreon and I don't get 36 charges. They lump it all together and I only get charged once. So why were they going to charge me the credit card processing fees 36 times? I thought they weren't very uh, forthright about how and why they were doing that. Well, and the stated reason that I understand is that when somebody comes in to Patreon, they say, I'm going to do your Ken Gagney's Star Trek podcast and give them two bucks a month. But they, come, they don't come in on the first of the month. They come in, you know, the 10th or the 15th or the 20th. And they pledge. And then they get access to all these back episodes or whatever thing the creator has put on to Patreon. And then they can consume all that stuff and say, okay, I've got what I want and delete their pledge and never be charged. And so the idea was to have a way that, you know, 
if they come in on the 10th, they're charged on the 10th, and then they're charged the next month on the 10th. Yeah, but there are solutions for that that are, there that are. are a and, little bit better. I mean, in a word, prorate. I mean, you know, charge me for one third of a month if I'm two thirds in or something like that. Yeah, and then the next time they charge on the first again. Exactly. I, there's definitely something that hasn't been fully explained with respect to the credit card charging aspect of all this. Um, and I'm hoping, well, like I said, I hope that that becomes clearer with whatever they turn around and propose in the future. So one thing Patreon did do about a year ago is for somebody coming in new mid-month, the creator can set that they are charged for that month instantly. So if they come in on the 10th, they're charged on the 10th. The problem is it's not prorated and they're charged again on the first of the next month. So yeah, I absolutely think prorating is the, the way to do it so that you can bundle these charges because you know a lot of these these uh, pledges are one and two dollars a month, and then to charge two point nine percent plus thirty five cents that's like forty percent extra on a one dollar pledge that's ludicrous can i can, I can't imagine if you're doing thirty some odd pledges to various uh, support you know to support various uh, enterprises um, that actually would have been the fee structure would have hit you probably pretty hard yeah I have thirty six charges and twenty five of them are at the one dollar level. I spread myself thin and not too deep, and so I would have gotten quite a bit extra fees i mean still within my budget, but unnecessarily so to get charged that much more and so i didn 't actually change any of my pledges because I get charged the first of every month. They announce these changes at the beginning of december i 'm like well, I have thirty days to see what 's going to happen. And so I didn't change anything. And, you know, by mid-December, they rolled it all back. So I didn't have to re-sign up to support anybody who I used to support. And I, I wish more people had been patient to see what would happen. And I feel awful for those of you who did lose your backers. There were definitely folks who bailed um, the first day, uh, literally. Like, I, I think it took me about, I'll say, 48 hours to um, react and say that, Hey, I've got an alternative. You can pledge over here, and that's when people started switching. But before I even before people were aware of that alternative, um, I definitely had probably a dozen or two dozen people um, just completely leave uh, because of uh, what Patreon had announced. And yeah, those I, I I don't know what to do about those folks. I don't know that there's anything I can do about them other than I just let them know through my normal channels that um, you know here's the alternative. Come back, and I Not believe that since they did pay on the 1st of December, that if you send a message to your patrons, they will get it even though they have deleted their pledge. Maybe it's, not if they've closed their account. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I was taking a look at my list of patrons uh, just before coming on the show tonight, and I don't see any indication of which ones are um, uh, have canceled their pledge, but I see an awful lot that are marked as declined. And I can't believe that that many credit cards are getting declined. So I'm wondering if that's the uh, the indication that people have left. Uh, so if that's the case- Or maybe charged back. They're still, on the, they're still on this list. And yes, I'll probably at least send out a reminder to my patron list via Patreon saying, hey, you know, here's the situation. We've got this, we've got that. Um, if you signed up for my alternative, but you haven't yet canceled Patreon, make sure you do so you don't get double charge. 
Right. So, so what is this? Uh, you know, thinking ahead for Patreon, I, I, I'm optimistic on a lot of things, and I think that, you know, them, set, you know, the email they sent out saying, you know, we're not going to do this, we're holding off, we're going to figure something else out. Um, as long as they don't, their next move is decent. Uh, I think it could could be good for the company long term, and you know, well, first of all, a lot of people found out what Patreon was because of this because they made a lot of news and um so that you know even if it's you know they say no you know even bad news is good news um a, a lot of people had no idea it existed now i've heard the term and maybe three months from now if they see somebody who has a patreon campaign they won't be clueless as to what it is they'll be more open to to contributing but also it shows you know before this we thought, well, Patreon could do all sorts of things to change how their system works, and we get no say. And now we saw, well, they did try to do something like that, but we spoke up, and they changed their minds, which makes me feel good because it's like, well, that, if they do something in the future that is a wrong move, there's a, a chance that they'll listen to reason and to, to, to people, to their customers. I think one of the biggest takeaways for Patreon is understanding just how much people care. And it's easy to just run this little payment system in the background, accepting money from one person and handing it to another and not get a lot of feedback other than the charges that come and go. They got a lot of feedback this time, a lot of valuable feedback that said patrons care, uh, the creators care, everybody cares. So there's a real strong incentive for them to, A, keep doing what they're doing. What they're doing is important to a lot of people. And like you say, do it, do a better job of engaging with everybody before making changes. Yeah, there's passion there. There's real passion on on all sides with this system, which is a a really good sign um, for this continuing, not just from Patreon, but having competitors and having multiple systems out there and having this be a way to monetize uh, creators works that doesn't involve advertising, which is what a lot of, a lot of people on Patreon are getting away from is, is the advertising that used to be on their sites and supporting their work. So for someone who doesn't have a Patreon, after all this has happened, would you still recommend Patreon as the way that they go about crowdfunding? Or if they're technical enough, should they roll their own? I, I mean, if you're technical enough, you can roll your own. The reason I didn't roll my own, well, besides not seeing that there was a lot of work and I, I wanted to be creating, not managing a, a payment system. Um, I didn't want to devote any hours of the week to that. But for me, there was the comfort of the fact that, you know, people may know me and know my site, but then all of a sudden I'm asking for like, oh, fill out this form and give me your credit card number. It's like a different level of trust. It's like all you know about me is that I create these these Mac videos, and now I'm asking you for like financial information. But if I go and I say, well, I'm doing it through this big company that has all this you know clout and is known, and and there are other creators on there. There's a safety level. It's like kind of you know you go to a site and it says, hey, buy my book, and you know give me your address and your credit card number, and I'll send you my book, or buy it at Amazon. And people say, oh yeah, Amazon. I know Amazon. You know they're a big company they're not going to you know do anything wrong so i'll buy the book from amazon the same thing here it's like i you know patreon seems to be something a lot of people are using so i kind of feel it's a little more trustworthy and you know giving my my money to and then it gets through to you know this creator 
So like, Ken, I have a slightly different answer. You asked if that is the way to do it. I think it's more like a way to do it. If you have a relationship with your audience that you can ask them to support you directly, then great, do that. But I think also having another way for the same reasons that Gary just said, you know, maybe they like the Amazon approach better and they'll be more interested in doing it on Patreon, especially if they're already there. They can easily add, you know, throw another dollar in for this guy. So it kind of depends. I, th I think the bottom line is people who create original stuff need to be paid so they can continue to create original stuff. I think Facebook is pretty much eating the entire internet and people say, well, that's free. That's cool. It's not free. You're giving up a lot of your privacy by putting everything you do on Facebook. It follows you to every website you go to. It knows what you're doing. It knows when you go to Amazon to buy something. So I don't think that's necessarily a, a, a healthy way to, to do things. So you're saying it's not either or, it's both. I think it's a mix of more than one thing, and Patreon might be one of those things. I'll also throw in that uh, sometimes there are um, technical reasons. You might want to choose one over the other. Um, first of all, I will say that right now I've got no hesitation uh, continuing to recommend Patreon for people who aren't technically inclined or uh, for folks who, um, you know, like the music creators or the, the video creators or the whatevers that aren't selling, um, uh, you know, that aren't... Uh, uh, producing product or, or having something. You, I mentioned when I started that um, I had been planning on uh, de-emphasizing Patreon. And that's because one of the things people get as their reward for supporting me on Patreon is an account on my site. Gary wanted to avoid creating accounts. He doesn't want to have an account management system on his site. Mm -hmm. Whereas I do because I'm offering content that's gated by membership. I'm offering uh, the opportunity to um, have an ad-free experience, like Randy was saying, that um, you, know, you get if you log into my site, but you have to log in. You have to have your own personal account on my site. So at that point, the concept of trying to avoid account management isn't an issue. In fact, it's fundamental to me. And the reason I was trying, starting to avoid Patreon and continuing with perhaps having my own alternative is that I could then allow people to have one and only one account. Whereas with Patreon, now they've got two. They've got the account that they get their rewards on over on my site, but then they also have the Patreon account that they have to use to manage the payment. And for some people, that's, you know, that's one account too many. There's no perfect solution is the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So Gary, tell us about this new iMac Pro that's uh, come out. Yeah, so you know, uh, a long time ago, <laughs> Apple <laughs> announced that they were going to come out with this iMac Pro, and kind of unceremoniously, they they released it. Um, it just appeared that there wasn't a big like announcement, no big thing where they showed it off. Uh, you know, they just it's here and um, people can order them. So the deal with the iMac Pro, which is the first of its of its line. Uh, it's never been. It's something called an iMac Pro before. It's basically this graphite-colored iMac, slightly different-looking case with a very powerful set of features uh, and a powerful price tag to go along with it. <laughs> so um, 
the base model is $5,000 and you can customize it up to $13,000 and change. Um, if you max out the number of cores and the memory and the storage and everything. Um, and it's got, you know, uh, it, it, it's got basically it's the most, the fastest, most advanced Mac ever made. Whenever this happens, you know, people like to jump on it and say things like, uh, oh, Apple just announced a new $13,000 Mac, you know, it, it grabs headlines. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of people that comment about, you know, how expensive it is and who needs that and all that. And, and the truth is, of course, there's tons of professionals that jump on it. That's why, you know, Apple came out with it. And that's why you probably have a hard time getting one right now because uh, they're probably being sold as quickly as Apple can make them. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I haven't gotten a chance to check one out yet. I think there's, they should at some point this week start appearing in Apple stores where you can look at them. I'm going to go to my local one and take a look. I've, I'm a Mac Pro user, so I already have this Mac Pro on my desk with multiple screens. So it's really not the machine for me. Um, but it is, uh, uh, it is going to be for a lot of people. I know a lot of people that I would expect, I would have expected them to have Mac pros on their desk and they actually have iMacs that are maxed out, maxed out. And now they'll, uh, you know, the iMac pro is exactly what it is that they wanted in the first place, not a maxed out regular iMac. Um, so can you explain real briefly? I haven't had a Mac since the 90s. Yeah. What's the difference between a Mac Pro and an iMac Pro? What's the i do for you? Well, the, the iMac is an all-in-one. So it's basically, it looks Got like it. just a screen. <laughs> you know, it's a big screen and everything is behind the screen. All, you know, And then it's this big screen on a stand with, and then you have your keyboard and your trackpad. Uh, whereas a Mac Pro is a tower. And actually it's a kind of a round cylinder. Um, now, but it's head, you know, it doesn't, you attach your own screens to it. So that's the, uh, that's the main difference. Now the, I presume you can put extra screens on the iMac though. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You can, you can add extra screens to the, I, uh, to the iMac and, uh, and for the Mac uh, pro you, you have to, and you can attach easily up to six screens on the Mac pro because it has six, six, uh, Thunderbolt outs. Um, I don't know. Anyway, it has six, but, uh, I have three. Um, and, uh, which leaves me three ports left over for other stuff. And, and actually, so the, uh, I think the most interesting thing that came out with this press release about it didn't actually have to do with the, the iMac itself, but at the very end of the press release, they had this, in addition to the new iMac pro Apple is working on a completely redesigned next generation Mac pro architected for pro consumers who need the highest performance high throughput system in a modular upgradable design as well as a new high end pro display so that one paragraph there is a ton of news because there was the the thinking that the iMac pro is going to replace the Mac pro you know and the iMac pro will be the top of the line and that's not true they are working on a new Mac pro so the one i've got will will have a successor and they throw in the words modular upgradable design which is something that people have been complaining about and they're complaining about about the iMac Pro now they complained about somewhat about the Mac Pro itself um, and pretty much everybody's been complaining about about Macs even the even the Mac Tower from uh, 10 years ago which was uh, pretty modular and upgradable people complained it wasn't modular and upgradable enough um, so it'll be interesting to see if they're going to focus on that 
what they come out with. That would truly would be a different Mac. And then that last part, a new high-end display, that's something Apple doesn't have a display now. Their last display went out of circulation quite a while ago, and they've been selling LG displays, like a 5G LG display in Apple stores. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, an Apple-branded display to come with a new Mac Pro. Um, and of course, that whole thing probably will make that $5,000 to $13,000 price tag look cheap. <laughs> I would imagine that's even going to be more expensive. Yeah, I've got a Mac Pro myself, and it's interesting how upgradable it isn't. I mean, you, you can add RAM uh, to a point, which I've done. And uh, I think you can um, swap out the SSD, uh, which I've not done. I've still got the half terabyte um, SSD that it came with. But I think that's about all you could do with it, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the, the thing is, yeah, there's no internal slots, but the Mac architecture really doesn't use internal slots anymore because it has Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt you know, it's part, you know, that's Intel's technology and it's a direct line to the motherboard. So it basically takes the place of internal slots, but without a size restriction. So you can hook anything you want up to Thunderbolt, you know, particularly Thunderbolt 3, but Thunderbolt 2 even, um, and have extremely fast uh, throughput. You don't, you know, you don't need to have an internal card. You can, you know, somebody, if they wanted to make a peripheral for Macs, whether it was the iMac Pro or the Mac Pro, they could do it using Thunderbolt 3, and there would not be any restrictions on that because it's not an internal device. You don't need the internal devices anymore. And to be be fair, I mean, I do have, you know, an 8 terabyte external Thunderbolt connected hard drive, and of course, my... uh, um, my display is a Thunderbolt display, and um, it's got a couple of USB ports hanging off of that, et cetera, et cetera. But I just thought it was interesting how, you know, what, like you said, what, are they, what do they really mean? What does it mean for the next generation of Mac Pro to be upgradable or whatever? Yeah, it, that is going to be interesting to see how they rect- rectify those two things with them having the design idea that you upgrade through external Thunderbolt devices. But now they're saying it's going to be modular and upgradable. So is that the same as what they've been doing all along, or are they going to be doing something different? I mean, I've often thought if they just gave you a big case (laughs) and had it be empty and had Thunderbolt ports inside of it and said, hey, you could slip your external devices internally into the case, uh, would that satisfy people? Um, Are they looking for something that looks a little bit more raw than a Thunderbolt connection, which is kind of nice, sleek little rectangle that you can plug things into? Maybe they're just all concerned about the number of power supplies that they have to plug in for all those external devices. Yeah, and Thunderbolt supplies power. So technically, you could just have a, a case where you put in, maybe they come out with a set of design specs, and it's like a little rack. And it's just as long as you buy something that fits into that little internal rack and it plugs into Thunderbolt and it gets power through there and it communicates super fast with the motherboard through there. And it's, it's you know, the people that were, are complaining about external devices can't ex- complain anymore because it's not external because it's inside the case. I don't know. We'll have to see. Well, you know, I'm sitting right here with an Apple computer that has seven expansion slots inside it. I can pop the hood and put anything I want in my Apple II. 
2E, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not the 2C, no. <laughs> the, the irony is, you know, after having worked at Microsoft for many years and, and doing what I do with mostly Windows, the first computer I purchased was, in fact, an Apple II, and it was prior to the E. And you still have that computer, I hope. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, so yeah, I had an Apple IIe as well. One of the funny things is, is you had to take up one of those ports, one of those internal slots just for a clock because Apple IIe had no internal clock. So if you had a, a, a need to actually tell what time it was, um, you had to have an expansion slot filled with a card that had a clock on it. That's true. And another slot just for 80 columns of text as opposed to 40. That's right. And a lot of them came with that, that slot already taken up with that card. I think mine was one of them. I think mine was like a bundle, and it came with the 80-column card already installed. That was one of Microsoft's early ventures as well, an 80-column card that allowed your Apple II to run CPM. Mm. So, Ken, Bitcoin. What's up with Bitcoin these days? Does anybody here use Bitcoin or has invested in Bitcoin? I have. Uh, let's see. I put exactly $20 into Bitcoin just to see what it was all about a couple of years ago. And it is now worth 430 some odd dollars. It's crazy. That is a good return. My goodness. And Bitcoin has reached skyrocketing all-time record highs lately, and it's been fluctuating quite a bit. In fact, some retailers, such as Steam, have stopped taking Bitcoin because it is so volatile. They don't want to accept a currency that could be worth nothing tomorrow and lose so much money on that transaction. But what really caught my attention, and I have not used Bitcoin myself, was this tweet by a meteorologist named Eric Holthouse, who was linking to an article he'd read on grist.org. The tweet said, the Bitcoin computer network currently uses as much electricity as Denmark. In 18 months, it will use as much as the entire United States. He's not saying, unfortunately, in this tweet, maybe because it's only 280 characters, in what time span? the Bitcoin computer network uses as much electricity as Denmark, but you click through to the grist.org and then there are additional links that go to IEEE, for example, .org. And what they're saying is that a single Bitcoin transaction uses as much electricity as nine houses in the United States do an entire day and that it is growing significantly. They're basically saying that Bitcoin is slowing our transition away from fossil fuels, which uh, is quite the claim. Now, I thought that IEEE was a pretty good source, and they were not quite as uh, apocalyptic as grist.org, but Gary, I believe that you have some additional details that may put this into context. Well, yeah, just, you know, I, I looked at that original article too, and right away my, my sense of skepticism went up. And, I, you know, just knowing a little bit about uh, blockchain, the cryptocurrency, and how, you know, how, how computers work with the authentication and all of that, I thought they're definitely using energy, but that seems way off. And so I just did some searches and I started to notice that, first of all, this isn't the first time somebody has reported that, uh, you know, bit, the Bitcoin network is using a ton of power. It seems to have been reported sporadically for years. There's been different 
articles written about it. And then I started to notice that there's a bunch of articles that go the opposite way, basically saying that, hey, that article you just read about Bitcoin network using a lot of power, it's, it's not true. And, it's, and of course, those articles didn't get as much attention because why would they? You know, the article saying, hey, Bitcoin's using as much power as Denmark, that's something you click through to read. But an article saying it doesn't use as much power as Denmark, it's just not as interesting. So I started to look at some of the numbers and of course, I just don't know enough about the processing power needed and all of that to, to check the assumptions. But I think it sounds to me like the more reasonable claims were the ones in the deniers, the ones that said, no, it doesn't really use that much power. It seemed to make sense because they had several different ways they attacked the issue saying, well, not only, you know, doesn't it, you know, shouldn't it use that much power to do these uh, transactions, but it, if it did, there'd be all sorts of ways to detect that and we'd be noticing by now and it would be a major problem. So, you know, and the skeptic in me wants to go with the skeptical, the skeptical part of it because it just seems kind of ridiculous. And, and it also, some of those articles pointed out how you could just make a small, small miscalculation at the beginning just by thinking about how much power a very small part of a transaction uses. And then by the time you go and multiply that by all the transactions going on, all of that, your number can be way out of whack. So I don't know. I, I, I tend to think, I tend to think skeptical now. Somebody's got to prove to me that Bitcoin transactions are actually taking up 18 houses worth of energy. Um, otherwise, it, no, I, d I don't buy it. So you're a Bitcoin climate denier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got a lot of problems. That was actually some of the articles too talked about like, well, if you put it in perspective, then you could claim, you could say, hey, how many iPads are sold every year? And what's the average amount of power used by an iPad for charging over the period of a, of a year, and how much does that equal up to when compared with things? So, you know, if you think of everybody charging their cell phones in the United States for an entire year, how much energy compared to, say, Denmark is that? And then you could write an article about people using their cell phones is ruining the climate. Or another perspective I saw was that Bitcoin doesn't require federal banks to have branches and security guards. So you're saving a lot of electricity and resources by using a cryptocurrency as opposed to a traditional currency. Excellent point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, in episode three, we talked about that Google has developed three gigawatts of green power to run their entire operation. So if all of Google only takes three gigawatts worldwide with all the Gmail accounts, all the AdWords, all that stuff, I, I just don't see that Bitcoin is going to even be on that chart. I think there's an aspect of, I'll just call it plausibility. I, I, I tend to go with Gary. I'm, I'm certainly skeptical about the claims. But with what I understand of, of Bitcoin and what it means to actually mine Bitcoin, um, you know, you're doing a very CPU intensive calculation as fast as you can. And it's to your advantage to have the fastest or the most hardware you can throw at the problem in order to be able to mine Bitcoin faster than everybody else that's trying to mine Bitcoin. So there's a real incentive uh, to throw lots and lots of hardware at the problem, thereby using lots and lots of power. I'm not, you know, again, I, I don't have a sense of scale. Uh, there are data centers that have been created specifically for Bitcoin mining. Uh, how do they measure up compared to Denmark? I don't, I really don't know, 
but um, it's at least one of those things where everybody's encouraged to use up as much power as they possibly can in order to win this, uh, this race. Yeah, so I just thought that was an interesting article. It's a true or false. It's definitely an aspect of Bitcoin I had never considered. I don't want to dismiss it out of hand just because I find it unbelievable. But you're right that I think more facts and more context are needed. I think it's a fascinating way to look at any of the technology we talk about. I mean, you could apply it to Facebook too, and you could say, you know, how much how many how much power is being used by processors and network routers and all of that that's all just facebook and you know what percentage of the usa national power consumption uh is for that and for then for google searches and then for you know microsoft exchange email accounts and you know all this stuff um it's a different way of looking at it and a way that a lot of people don't think about they don't think about this as something you know that that consumes power which then consumes fossil fuels and ken mentioned you know charging your cell phones or maybe it was leo that doesn't even bring into account all the towers that are running there transmitting at full power all the time and have these huge diesel backup generators just in case so you can still use your phone in a power outage that's a huge infrastructure right there True, and, and we shouldn't ignore those either, but those also shouldn't be a reason to ignore smaller things because even smaller things can add up. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And then there's uh, then the other side of that is the work by, by people on the technology, hardware, and software side to make things more energy efficient. You know, more energy efficient processors, more energy efficient uh, battery charging, um, all sorts of things like that. There's been a lot of technology thrown into that. Just uh, processors themselves, CPUs, you know, uh, major advancements have been made in having them use less and less power, um, you know, so they can work on small devices. And the chips we use now, like the the chips that go into our phones and everything, they're designed to be low power. And the screens too, because of the batteries, for one thing. But the side effect of that is that we use less fossil fuels for computing. Somebody today that only has a phone and is checking Facebook and stuff, if we didn't have mobile, you know, technology like that, they may be using a lot more power sitting at a PC doing it. And that actually is the context of the IEEE article. This was not a sensational article about doom and gloom. It was about how to make a more sustainable blockchain, who is working toward that, how and why, not, oh my God, Denmark. (laughs) Those crazy Danes. (laughs) So, Randy, Facebook. We were talking about Facebook. Facebook is is bad for me. Yeah, I have a lot to say about this, including a bunch of quotes, because I think it's important to get the context of this and go behind this scary clickbaity headline. So indulge me for a minute or two here. In a headline that I saw, CNBC says, and I quote, Facebook just admitted that using Facebook can be bad for you. And after rolling my eyes, I spent a little time researching it and found a couple of examples of what CNBC means by that headline. Quote, University of Michigan students randomly assigned to read Facebook for 10 minutes were in a worse mood at the end of the day than students assigned to post or talk to friends on Facebook. Another one, UC San Diego and Yale found that people who clicked on about four times as many links as the average person or who 
liked twice as many posts reported worth worse mental health than average in a survey. On the other hand, Carnegie and Mellon University says, quote, people who sent or received more messages, comments, and timeline posts reported improvements in social support, depression, and loneliness. So why does CNBC say Facebook admitted this? Because all these examples were posted on Facebook's media site, essentially a press release. Why would Facebook open this can of worms? Well, they didn't. A former Facebook executive, and I'll work on his name, Chamath Palahipataya, did when he came out to say that social media is ripping apart society. It's important to note he's not just talking about Facebook. Palihipatia was an early Facebook employee joining them in 2005 and worked his way up to vice president in charge of user growth and left the company in 2011. So this is another story where I really had to follow a chain. I first found the report on CNBC, which then I found another one on CBS News, which said it got it from a its own affiliate in San Francisco, which in turn linked to a report from The Verge. So there I found that Paula Hippatia said this in a talk at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. And what he really said was, the short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops we've created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, but rather misinformation mistruth. And it's not an American problem. This is not about Russian ads. This is a global problem, unquote. He recommended people take a hard break from social media and doesn't allow his own children to use it at all. And he levies this criticism on all social media, not just Facebook. So as an example, he noted that in India, hoax messages about kidnappings on WhatsApp led to the lynching of seven innocent people. That's what we're dealing with, he said. And imagine taking that to the extreme where bad actors can now manipulate large swaths of people to do anything you want. It's just a really, really bad state of affairs, unquote. So with all that context, I think it's a little bit overblown. I don't think I can, you know, manipulate large swaths of people to do anything I want them to. But that said, I pretty much agree with them. I've long noticed that Facebook really triggers the pleasure centers, that dopamine hit, and surely that's on purpose. So I've already been cutting way back in my time on especially Facebook. I'm interested in what you guys think about all this. Well, I only partially agree. I mean, I think, of course, there's some truth there. And, of course, I've seen instances of social media really – you know, affecting people's lives in a negative way. But I've also seen social media affecting people's lives in a very positive way. Uh, you know, I think there, there are people that their lives are better off because they are in touch with others. Their lives are better off because they're, they feel closer to their families who they don't live near and see very often, but now can actually stay in touch with uh, a much easier way. I mean, I remember getting holiday cards from distant relatives and friends once a year and catching up, uh, you know, whole year's worth of stuff in one page that was, you know, stuffed into a holiday card. And now instead of finding out that maybe they were dealing with some illness in the middle of the year or uh, a child was born or something like that, I actually knew, know when it happens. And 
it's uh and so i think it really does connect people i think there's there's some people that it really works for to help them be more connected and feel more connected to the world and the people they care about um and it's a generally positive thing but then at the same time all that other stuff you said is true too it it can have a negative effect i think we need to get better at handling this um and and recognize there is something to be handled and maybe you know the next generation is going to have that built in you know this is just an effect of the two generations of people really that you know the baby boomers and generation x that didn't grow up with this and now it exists so so i don't know so it's something i think it, it's going to keep changing and to actually make a decision right now in 2017 about what this is is probably the wrong thing to do it's it's going to keep changing and evolving i'm kind of along the same lines as gary i don't think it's a you know social media is evil kind of a thing social media it's a tool it's a communications mechanism Um, it can be used for good it can be used for bad some people have a proclivity to go one way or the other um, it's absolutely the case that I'm seeing it connect more people um, in positive ways than uh, than would otherwise be connected. Um, and let's face it, you know, their lynch mobs are nothing new. They didn't happen, you know, they didn't start happening because of Facebook. Even fake news, as much as we like to to blame things like social media, uh, there's nothing new to that. Yellow journalism dates back, you know, centuries, if not for more. So I think that. Social media is something that we as, I'll just say, a species need to learn how to use properly. And, yep, it may not be for everybody. Uh, We all need to develop that healthy sense of skepticism. But like I said, there's good in there, and I don't want to see that good get uh, get washed away or get get forgotten because of uh, the occasional or, or the ongoing problems that social media does have. And I'm definitely not propounding that it's something we should ban or anything like that. I do obviously see the the positive aspects, just like I see positive aspects of opiates. But that doesn't mean that everybody's controlling their use of them well. We have a big opiate problem in this country. And I think just recognizing that there is some negative aspect is a good start, that yeah, it can be addictive, it can be unhealthy for you, and maybe just take a look at how much you're using Facebook. I mean, I, I'm cutting down on Facebook. I didn't say I'm cutting it out. So, yeah, I'm still on there, still connecting with friends and family members, but realizing that some of my time there is not really healthy and productive, and, yeah, I'm I'm hiding more people and not clicking on things as much and not spending as much time there. And I think it's a healthy thing to just think about how much time you're spending there. Well, I think we can all agree that we should take Facebook off our phones at least. I did. Yeah. Yep. I did not. Um, and it's interesting. It's interesting. It's on my phone. Um, I don't spend a lot of time browsing Facebook. I just find the small interface too annoying, but it allows me to connect with people like Facebook Messenger. I'm actually having conversations with people or organizing things or doing things that um, uh, probably wouldn't be happening elsewhere. So like I said, I think it really does come back to personal management. Can you manage this tool in a healthy way or not? If you can't, or if you find that it's too distracting or too consuming for you, then yeah, 
take a step back, take the appropriate measures um, that are appropriate for you. Just don't necessarily assume that those same measures are, uh, are what everybody requires. Yeah, I still have it on my phone too. Um, but I, I, I don't seem to have too much of a problem ignoring Facebook. Sometimes I, uh, yeah, I, I just, I go a day or two and I, I don't even check it and realize that, uh, you know, I need to check it cause I need to check up on something or whatever. But, um, so yeah, so I haven't removed it from my phone because it simply hasn't gotten in my way. I wouldn't put it on my phone because it was asking for so many permissions to look at my address book and things like that. And I've got some people in my address book that, you know, I want to protect. They're they're well-known people that don't necessarily want their private cell phone numbers out there. So, yeah, I am very careful of what apps I let see things like that. And that's, that's a whole nother discussion. The number of yeah. permissions that apps want and in Facebook's case, also um, the amount of power that it ends up using to, to come full circle on the power consumption discussion. Um, that app is one of the bigger battery drainers uh, you know, over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I had to say about it. Cool. Well, I think uh, we're, we're at, at about the end of the hour. But maybe uh, does anybody have any anything interesting going on uh, this last week or into the holidays here? I was just cranking on my Patreon replacement on my own website, and that uh, pretty much used up all my extra time. Yeah, that was about the beginning of my week as well. Was just you know shepherding that. I was fortunate enough to have it in place, but uh, making sure that the uh, the machine was working was uh, was a good chunk of time earlier this week. Sounds like you're both using WooCommerce subscriptions. That is correct. Yes. Yeah, I use that for a different project of mine, and I have all my subscriptions synchronized for January 1st. No matter when somebody signs up, January 1st is when they get charged. So two weeks from now is going to be my annual use of WooCommerce subscriptions. Your big payday. It's Yeah, you're right. I look for January 1st to get me all the funds I need to get through another year. So do you are you prorating people, or how does that work? So it's a print magazine subscription that I'm selling. And when people sign up, if they sign up at any point in the year, I immediately send them all the issues that have been published that calendar year. Uh, awesome. Okay. That solves the problem. I like it. <laughs> yeah, prorating the other direction. I like that. Yeah, yeah. It's a little unusual, especially as far as magazine subscriptions go. And sometimes we have to do a little bit of education to get our customers to understand what they're actually buying, but in the long run, it works really well. And it's so much easier to only have to send subscription reminder emails and postcards once a year to everybody. I like and, it. and plug the magazine real quick and I'll put a link to it on the show page. Oh, thank you. That would be juiced.gs, which is both the name of the magazine and the website. It's a quarterly print publication dedicated to, of all things, the Apple II computer. It has been around for 22 years going into the 23rd wow. next month. And it is the longest running and last remaining print publication dedicated to the Apple II. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so this week, I, 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 uh, since I didn't have to do the Patreon switchover, I, uh, I, I released a course for my first course in a few months. So it's on Mac productivity. And uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, MacMost.com, I've got it there on the front page. And, I, and I've got my introductory sale, which only goes till the 22nd. So uh, it's as cheap as it's going to ever going to be. So uh, if you're interested in that, check it out at macmost.com. Very cool. 
Anything else, guys? I think that wraps it up. All right. Well, hey, it's only been five episodes now, but we don't have enough reviews in iTunes to get a rating yet. So if you use iTunes, we'd appreciate it if you would rate the show there and maybe write a quick review. It'll really help get the word out. Again, a reminder that there will be no episodes for the next two weeks. We'll be back in early January. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh5. We're also on Twitter at the TEH podcast. And yeah, we're on Facebook at slash the TEH podcast. Have a good uh, holiday, you guys. Yep, you too. You too. Merry Christmas, everybody.